Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative from the times of the indigenous peoples to the present. The startup Digital First National Museum of American Religion is the nationally recognized center for presenting, interpreting, and educating the public about what religion has done to Americans and what Americans have done to religion. It invites all to explore the role of religion and the freedom that fuels it in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans, and thus, America itself. Listen to our new program, The Making of Us, Lived Religion in America, by joining Chris Stevenson, host of the podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, and hear personal stories about religion's influence on the lives of the nation's citizens. It is through hearing these stories that we can better comprehend ourselves, our communities in the nation, and see more clearly how the American project can endure. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the Sign Up tab. Good morning. And welcome to Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series of the Digital First National Museum of American Religion, an institution dedicated to telling the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle. Listeners, we're glad you're with us to join the museum effort. Go to When Sorrow Comes subscribemenow.com where you can receive with a $200 donation a signed copy of When Sorrow Comes, a book by Melissa Mathis about sermons that have come to the aid of America during times of national crisis. Speaking of national crisis, uh, there seems to be some sort of mental health crisis in the United States, especially among our younger people uh, and many with many blaming social media. Teen suicide is in the news, and depression seems to be an ever-growing menace and also in the news. Then COVID hit last year, which only exacerbated the problem. Mental health has a special place as seen through the lens of religious communities. The sicknesses one can't see, the depression, the darkness, all things of the soul, quote-unquote, are things religion naturally seems to address. So at the museum, we believe it will be instructive for all of us to better understand how religion has, been, has seen and addressed mental health throughout U.S. history so that we are each better equipped to see to the mental health challenges of our present moment. This morning, we have a fantastic panel of scholars who will, in an hour, help us do this. Dr. Judith Weisenfeld, Agate Brown, and George L. Collard Professor of Religion at Princeton University and author of Hollywood Be Thy Name, African American Religion in American Film, 1929-1949, through 1949, African American Women in Christian Activism, New York's Black YWCA, 1905 and ni- through 1945, and New World A Coming, Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration. Her research currently examines the intersections of psychiatry, race, and African-American religion in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Dr. Andrew Walker Cornetta, 
postdoctoral research associate at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. His research focuses on how religious communities have shaped the history of disability in the United States. In August, he will begin a position as assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Georgia State University. Dr. Barbara McClure, associate professor of pastoral theology and practice at Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University and author of Emotions, Problems and Promise for Human Flourishing. Her primary interests lie in the meaning of and means toward human flourishing, respecting both the fractured character of human nature and the religious impulse for wholeness and coherence. Dr. Camila Rushad, founder and president of Muslim Wellness Foundation and the founding co-director of the National Black Muslim COVID Coalition. She is a visiting assistant professor of psychology and Muslim studies at Chicago Theological Seminary. And last but not least, Dr. Elizabeth Hayes Alvarez, associate professor of religion at Temple University and a Scattergood Fellow working on a book entitled Challenging the Great Physician, Christian Responses to the Rise of Psychiatry in America. Thank you each for being with us today. The time is short and we need your help, so let's jump in. Listeners, there will be a Q&A if needed in the middle of the hour and or at the end of the hour. So if you have questions, please send them to us via the chat function. Dr. Weisenfeld, uh, let's have you start off. What have been some ways religious communities have viewed mental health throughout U.S. history, some of the primary and important ways? Thanks, Chris. Um, well, my research focuses on the racialization of religion and mental health in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and it explores um, powerful constraints that this racialization placed on Black people's individual and collective practices of freedom. So we see that in the wake of slavery, as Black people were attempting to establish community life and autonomy, and autonomy including in religious forms, um, white Southern asylum doctors, most of whom were deeply involved in Protestant church life and invested in the enslavement and subjugation of Black people. These white uh, Southern asylum doctors developed and they propagated racialized medical theories about what constituted mental normalcy and deviance that foregrounded their interpretations of Black religions. So we see in annual reports and studies um, published in medical journals, in their public lectures, they're arguing that slavery had been um, beneficial morally, physically, and mentally, that Black people were unfit for freedom, and that their religious sensibilities and practices were key sites for understanding what these white physicians um, framed as disordered responses to freedom. So they, they propagated, uh, they theorized a kind of essentialized black religious mentality that they claimed was characterized by fanaticism, superstition, emotionalism, and a kind of um, credulity that led black people to um, fall under the sway of unscrupulous and dangerous religious leaders. So where they might've applied this idea um, and others may talk about this, of religious excitement as a kind of aggrav aggravating factor 
for mania or melancholy among white patients. In those cases, they, often, they saw those as kind of individual cases. When they talked about religious excitement as a cause of insanity among African-Americans, they did so from a frame that imagined a kind of black racial essence that was manifested in a range of religious ideas, practices, and social forms they, they uh, saw as degraded, right? Because of, of a persistence of, again, what they spoke about as savagery and barbarism. So we see in this period, what I'm finding in my work is a kind of the lending of mental author a medical authority to white Protestantism as the standard for mental normalcy. And that sits at the core then of how they uh, interpreted um, African-American patients who came into their orbit um, and through this lens of a kind of pathologizing of black religious practices. Wow, uh, that that's... Uh enlightening this that you 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 talk about religious excitement being used as sort of a what 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 doctors would identify as an illness is this uh, prominent uh, throughout you know US history with regards to psychiatry that do, do, do they talk about religious excitement as a an illness maybe elizabeth is working on this yeah. as well yeah, Judith, I could speak to that. Sure. I mean, actually, Richard Evans, uh, Richard Kent Evans is doing a book on unreligious mania or religious madness right now. Uh, he's discovered a lot of interesting um, material that he shared with me about relig uh, excessive religiosity as a category that had its own emerging mental health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there's a there's a couple uh, frames here. One is that excessive religiosity is a form of mental illness. Um, within religious communities, I think um, what I'm discovering is that uh, really there's a contestation of defining uh, the soul versus the mind. So uh, religious groups had their own sphere of uh, professional expertise in which they felt that they were qualified to, to treat soul disorders. And they saw things like melancholia or what we would call depression as a spiritual deficit or a soul disorder. And with the rise of psychiatric professionalism, they were really being pushed out of their own area of expertise. So as psychiatric modalities rise in America and gain respect, religious communities start to lose several things. Um, at, the, at the most fundamental level, religious communities are losing the idea that what we would call mental illness is deficiencies of the soul because psychiatric modal modalities are starting to view them as deficiencies of the body, that is material illnesses, uh, physical illnesses, or uh, deficiencies in um, you know, parenting, environment, et cetera, uh, that, that people are formed right, by these experiences, but not by their spiritual condition, right? their relationship to God or their own guilt and anxiety. Secondly, religion doesn't wanna lose that, guilt, anxiety, um, the ability to have visions, uh, the ability to transform reality based on spiritual experiences. So religion has a lot at stake that's actually being threatened uh, by the rise of psychiatric modalities. And then finally, uh, we know, just circling back to what you started with, we know that sometimes uh, mania and other mental illnesses 
manifest genuinely in ways that um, come out in a religious vernacular for people. So we still understand that people who have a religious vernacular might experience, um, uh, you know, delusions that they understand as religious or manic episodes that they understand as religious, uh, even OCD episodes that they, you know, express in religious terms. So this exists now and it existed then. And there's a fight or a contestation between uh, psychiatric and psychological psychology departments and uh, that, that professionalism and the professionalism of uh, pastors. Uh, so yeah, Chris, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to stop you. I, I was no. responding to, I think, Camila, did you yes. jump in? Uh, sorry, I didn't yeah, mean to I cut you off, Elizabeth, at all. No, that. Well, I, I'm really excited because I wanted to tie together um, what both Dr. Weisenfeld and um, what Dr. Alvarez are um, sort of bringing up around one, the association of um, sort of psychiatry and even the idea or, or the, the dreaming of freedom being a mental illness, um, and then how psychiatry begins to also, I mean, if we understand even the origins of the DSM and being able to classify what is seen as sort of healthy and what is then sort of deficient, um, I think during this time period- What is the DSM? Uh, I'm sorry, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Great, um, I don't think our listeners would know that, okay. Yeah, sorry, jargon. Um, but I think what's interesting um, for me as, as um, you know, born and raised Black Muslim, um, my parents are converts to Islam, um, is that when you see even the migration to the North and, and sort of the beginning sort of proliferation of um, prototypical Islamic groups, right? So groups that are actually explicitly rejecting Christianity um, in the effort to adopt a new whole identity, um, you see the Moorish Science Temple, the Nation of Islam. Um, and what is particularly interesting about the Nation of Islam when it comes to sort of mental health and, and wellness um, is that there is a very uh, strong, positive, articulated vision um, for what is the source, right, of, of pathology, what is the source of the addiction um, and other sort of afflictions that people have. Um, and I, I wanted to just briefly mention, um, there's, there's a really great article um, in the New York Times, January 10th, 1964. Um, and the headline is, Black Muslims asked to help treat addicts here. Um, claims of sect draw attention of Harlem social workers. Malcolm X invited to clarify therapy of the movement. Um, and there's, um, you know, ironically, he is scheduled to uh, present to uh, the Negro Probation Officers Society of New York on April 20th, um, 1964. Um, and what they're interested in is, well, we see sort of the rise of the Nation of Islam and, and very visibly, right, there's a, a demarcation between those individuals sort of their before sort of conversion experience um, and then after, right? So you see these really prideful images of men in suits, they're clean shaven of, of women who are dressed and, and covered modestly. Um, and, you know, they're saying, well, a lot of the quote unquote fishing, right, or sort of active um, sort of invitation to Black Americans specifically are happening in places that other sort of spaces are neglecting. Um, and so what they, what he describes um, is that 
The therapy said to have been developed by Mr. Muhammad or Elijah Muhammad um, has two psychological elements in common with Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and what he says is the black Muslim therapist began to work on the hypothesis that the best way to deal with the Negro addict would be to create a new identity for him, an identity that would give him a conscious understanding and pride in his quote, nigritude. And this meant the black Muslim said, creating a black psyche consisting of pride in race, black accomplishments and identification with the past of the Negro people in Africa. Um, and so this transference of a new identity um, and embracing of one's past and identity um, related to the diaspora becomes a cure, right? So Islam mm -hmm. is seen as in and of itself a liberation therapy. Um, and, and I can share more later, but I, I think it's interesting how yeah. um, we see sort of the, the active seeking Right of not just faith, but a way of understanding oneself that also addresses some of those ailments. Wow, that's great. Thank you for for bringing that up, um, Elizabeth. If you, if you had anything, if I cut you off, which I did not mean to, a half sentence. Go ahead. Otherwise, Barbara or uh, Andrew, let's get your sort of thoughts on this first question. If I could jump in here, I, I want to address a little bit of the the conversation around contestation. Because I think there's not just contestation between um, religious leaders and quote unquote secular leaders, but there's actually contestation within religious groups around how to view mental illness, what mental health is and what to do about it. And I'm really interested as you heard in the introduction in the question of emotions as a primary tool in addressing mental health. But I think we in the West have inherited a confused view of emotions we have developed a fear and suspicion of our own emotions and those of others. And that fear, I think, makes it difficult to address mental health concerns. The founding mothers and fathers of the US brought with them religious perspectives that had been informed by Greco-Roman philosophers. And those philosophers had heavily influenced early Jewish, Christian, and Islamic theologians. And these perspectives have shaped religious views on emotions ever since. So the Greco-Roman perspective um, they differed on what mental health meant, and of course that's an anachronism, but um, most of the prominent early philosophers were really interested in what they called the passions. Today we might call them feelings or emotions, and many of the early thinkers, including Socrates and Aristotle and Hippocrates and the well-known Stoic Seneca, spent their lives trying to figure out how emotion, what emotions role in human thriving or well-being was, or in the Greek eudaimonia the good life. But the philosophers that our, our religious traditions have inherited and built on did not always agree on the relationship of the passions to the good life. So there are many opposing views, but I'll name two. So Aristotle understood emotions to be useful guides to what's good and for how to flourish in both, both as individuals and in society. But the Stoics viewed the passions as dangerous and the primary causes of suffering to be eliminated as possible, if possible. So there was this contestation within early Greco-Roman philosophy. And unfortunately, our Puritan forebears who founded the United States, um, or at least began the pro project, had inherited the Stoic view through their writings, through the writings on the passions of early Christian theologians like Pope Gregory the Great, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and John Calvin. And these early Christian theologians had largely adopted the Stoic understanding that emotion, which are of the body, as one of my colleagues mentioned a minute ago, are dangerous. And they added the idea that emotions or our emotional experiences 
aren't just dangerous, they're sinful. French philosopher René Descartes, of course, helped put the nail in the coffin of emotions, devaluing the body and its passions in favor of the, quote, rational mind. But as noted earlier, this isn't the only understanding of the passions in the body, but it did become the prevailing one. And it's the one that that Christianity, which is what I'm most authorized to speak on, uh, has has adopted in large part. The view that the body and its emotions are dangerous, even sinful, and that they have to be controlled and eradicated entirely is still with us, even if we're not always aware of it. And okay. I think we pass this message on to our kids. We train our kids not to cry. If you want somebody to cry about, I'll give it to you, as if a kid isn't already crying about something. Or the message that big boys don't cry. Yeah. We try to hide our grief. We punish groups or express righteous anger for those, for example, those committed to the idea that Black Lives Matter. But we've inherited mixed messages about emotions, too, and we're not sure what to do about that. Okay. While we are punishing and shaming ourselves and others for having emotions, we're also celebrating certain emotions in certain people at certain times. So it's culturally acceptable for men to get excited or even cry about their sports team winning or losing, but they shouldn't be too expressive about other things, right? Right. Women well. can express sadness, but we're not supposed to be angry. And people in targeted yeah. groups are culturally permitted to feel guilt, but what about their rage? Yeah. That's so our understanding and expressions of, of emotions are race, gendered, and enculturated and classed. And we, we don't know what to do with that. So I, I think that understanding this contestation within religious yeah. communities can be helpful. That's super helpful. That's great history to, to, to bring to bear here. Appreciate that, Barbara. Uh, Andrew, what are your thoughts on this first question? Well, my mind jumps around to a lot of different places and uh, especially uh, learning from my colleagues jumps around to even more. But one, when I was first thinking about it, about the question about how, you know, this expansive question about how religions have viewed mental health, one of the places where uh, my thoughts landed most firmly was on what's known as, or my mind kept coming back to was what's known as the Canton Asylum for Insane Indians, mm -hmm. which was uh, an institution run by the United States government from 1902 to 1934 under the auspices of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And there, uh, there was incarcerated roughly 400 Native Americans from 50 different nations. Um, and I'm not alone in, in thinking that incarceration is the right language to be using to speak about Canton. And, and the reason why Canton came to mind was not just because I just read an excellent book about Canton called Committed by the disability historian Susan Birch that came out this year. Um, but I think for two reasons that relate to some of the things my colleagues have been talking about. Um, the first is that Canton helps remind, thinking about Canton helps to remind us um, about the contingency of ideas about mental health. Uh, insanity and insanity itself, the the cultural uh, and particular historical construction of those categories as they're deployed in different times. So each of my colleagues have, have pointed to that in different ways. And Canton brings that into particularly clear relief because as Birch notes in this recent study, many of the people who are incarcerated at Canton came from communities that um, historically did not have fully equivalent or analogous terms to what we call mental health or sanity and insanity. Mm. To note that's not to fall into any kind of like facile 19th century notion of, of insanity as a disease of civilization or to fall into some kind of notion of uh, romant romanticized indigeneity or something like that, nor is it to deny the ways in which uh, 
indigenous communities have had and have uh, myriad very different, um, but also sophisticated ways of thinking about human diversity. But rather it is to just note that thinking about mental health as uh, a possession, something that I have uh, that I can lose or that can be diminished and that I'm in charge of managing and that a, a variety of experts are in charge of also helping me to superintend is, is not a human universal. And so Camden's useful for reminding us of that, again, as many uh, of my colleagues have pointed out in different contexts. And then once we do that, the kind of uh, ways in which that, that leads us to think about how insanity or sanity and mental health um, carry within it particular assumptions about the human that are tied up with race and religion that can be pointed in the pathologizing ways. Um, that my colleagues have talked about. So one way, again, why I'm thinking about Canton is that one way to talk about why many people were committed there or incarcerated was simply their refusal to comport with the kind of beliefs and norms of the Christians who were had power over them in schools, uh, in different nations, and so on. Um, and so this is just to say, of course, we won't, maybe all instances aren't as egregious, um, but it alerts us to the kinds of questions about how does the very idea of mental health um, traffic or reinforce ideas um, about uh, hierarchies among social groups along the lines of religion and race and so on. So this is, I mean, right. it's just another uh, contribution to the pile of, of questions and things that should be at the forefront of our mind when, when thinking about this. Great. Excellent. Thank you. Chris, can I respond real quick? You bet. I just, I, some things came up for me when Barbara was talking. I just want us to, and, and Andrew is, is pointing at the same thing. I want us to think really clearly about power and hegemony here. When, when Barbara was talking about rationalism, I, I don't necessarily agree that that's the founding of America. It's the, it's the founding of America, American hegemony. So within Christianity, there's plenty of room for emotionalism. The entire First Great Awakening and Second Great Awakening, so-called, are expressions of, of a truly uh, channeled um, and, and manifested, uh, you know, human emotional spiritual experience, actually distinctively so. Like um, American religious experience has had so much room for emotionalism, but just not among the elites. So rationalism is not just the opposite of emotionalism, but rationalism is also the opposite of insanity. And the construction of rationalism is the construction of um, institutional power structures. And emotionalism, uh, especially cathartic kind of collective effervescence experiences are the solidarity building and the outlet of all different groups who are denied access to those power structures and then called um, you know, emotional or or uh, unstable. And then finally, when you were asking about, you know, how do religions themselves respond? Um, religions themselves who had access to power, like Presbyterians, start a pastoral counseling movement, right? Because they say, look, uh, we can be professional just like the psych psychiatric professionals. So let's let's become colleagues. Mm -hmm. But those who know that they don't have access. <laughs> to that kind of respect, right? And professionalism that, that the, they won't be seen that way by the institutionalized power. They come up with alternative modalities of healing and sometimes they're suspect, mm -hmm. um, very suspect. 
to psychiatric mm. professionalism because it's just tied with other forms of institutionalized power and elitism. Thank you. Yeah, thank Judith. Just jump in quickly on that. Um, I, I agree. And then Judith. That, I to, agree that um, emotion and hegemony have to go together in the control and discipline of emotions. But I think when we look at the great awakening emotions, it wasn't the what are sometimes termed negative emotions. It was joy, faithfulness. I, I don't know if you, you disagree, and maybe you can teach me on that, but I haven't read a lot about how non- non-positive emotions were incorporated into religious life in very helpful ways. Thank you, Barbara. Judith, you had your hand, and then Camila. Um, no, I, I wanted to um, affirm uh, Andrew's and, and now Elizabeth's um, calling out of, of questions of power and hierarchy and, and, that, and the, the need to kind of nuance the we of, of who we are bringing into the, into the frame. And I think... Um, uh, Camila's um, comments also brought to mind to kind of putting them together with what Elizabeth was just talking about, the ways in which in my research, the kind of em emergence of new religious forms in American um, religious history often get framed in, as insanity. So we track this across time. So um, or um, for Africana religious practices like conjure, for example, that bring in um, non-Christian forms of, of physical and mental healing get framed as superstition and then as evidence of insanity. But with the rise of you know the holiness and Pentecostal um, movements, we see the pathologizing of them and their ecstatic worship um, uh, get as uh, as insanity, even as they are claiming we have the cure because the Holy Spirit brings us these new tools. Um, or again, I had in my notes to to call out how um, a, a new religious movement like the Nation of Islam that also makes a claim to a different way of thinking about um, about hu humanity and and being in wholeness gets pathologized, and so we can track right Christian Science. Um, is uh, marginalized as uh, you know as a evidence of insanity as well, and um, so that kind of uh, new manifestations. American religious creativity is often mm. subject to uh, pathologizing in these particular ways. Right. Wow. Very helpful, yeah, Camila. I, yeah, I think to <clears throat> to add um, to what you know everyone has already shared. Um, for, for me, in, in the research that I do around Black Muslim religious identity and identity development, um, is to be very explicit about Christian hegemony and how it has shaped a lot of the experiences that, that non-Christian, um, and in particular, um, non-Christian Black people in the United States um, have really experienced and navigated. Um, and so Black Muslim intersectional invisibility, like specifically, um, refers to Black American Muslims in particular, sort of not being viewed as members of the American Muslim community, though we number about 30% of American Muslims in the country. Um, and then there are ways that Black Muslims are also seen as apart from the broader African American community because of this active sort of rejection of Christian hegemony. Um, and so when we're, when we're talking about the we, as, as Dr. Weisenfeld mentioned, um, I think be, being very explicit about the connection between Christian hegemony and white supremacy um, and why um, within the nation of Islam, there is, there is this call to very early um, to say that some of the, um, the ways that we're characterized as, as lazy, as, you know, just sort of 
kind of taken away by, by lust and emotion um, that the assumption there is that it is um, what he called the white man's world that has sort of created these, these inflictions or even um, notions of inferiority. And so in order to break out of what is characterized as, as inherent, right, within the Black person or within the Black Muslim is to do this, this self-analysis, this self-evaluation, um, to be very aware of, of oneself and one's mind and sort of to reclaim one's mind as one own. Um, and so I, I think when, um, you know, when we see after, um, you know, even the assassination of, of Malcolm X and, you know, there's been a lot of conversation even about um, his shifting sort of spiritual orientation towards the end of his life, um, that there is still very much this commitment to we have to understand who we are um, and the ways that Christian hegemony has um, <clears throat> really acted as a barrier to people connecting um, to those aspects of, of their, their psyche um, that have been really damaging over time. Um, right. And so within the Islamic tradition, um, there is a deep history of exploration of the mind, body, spirit, right? There are specific prayers that one will make um, that, that calls on God to, you know, help you in seeking refuge against, against sadness, right? Against distress. Um, and so there is now sort of an emergence within uh, Muslim mental health professionals um, to really claim that as one, a, a long sort of uh, illustrious tradition, um, and now how it's being used in the United States, especially within Black American Muslim communities that have always seen Islam as, as a source of, um, of, of clarity, right, of liberation, um, and, and also a way to um, return to what's called the fitra or the natural state um, of, of one's like body and soul. Um, so okay. just kind of really being mindful to, to, to understand and I, and I think articulate yeah. the connection between Christian hegemony and white supremacy. Very, very helpful. This has been a great discussion of the first question about how religious communities uh, see or have seen or have viewed mental illness. Let's move closer to application although several of you have talked about application here. The question is, and let's start uh, with Elizabeth, um, start off on answering this. How have religious communities um, influenced the treatment of those with mental illness throughout U.S. history? So there's every answer. And since I can't speak to every answer, I'll say maybe somebody else can speak to things like the pastoral counseling movement and other um, ways in which religions have incorporated uh, modalities from um, you know, the fields of psychology and psychiatry. What I, what I would like to bring up is just, again, the contestation. So one of the ways that religions have affected this is by resisting it. And I, I can find examples uh, from most traditions where there's at least some branch that resists um, you know, mental health uh, doctors or psychiatrists. So if we take a, one example, uh, Catholicism, uh, the Vatican banned Catholics from seeking psychoanalysis and banned psychoanalytic treatment from monasteries. And this lasted all throughout the early 20th century. In fact, in the 1960s, um, a brother was, uh, 
you know, convicted of having participated in psychoanalysis in his monastery, and he was kicked out of religious life. As recently as the 1960s, you know, eventually the Vatican comes around and says, um, okay, it is permitted for Catholics to seek psychoanalysis and other psychiatric treatment, but only if they have pursued spiritual means first. Actually, the language says not at the expense of the supernatural. And there were conditions listed, which is that the categories, this is from the International Catholic Congresses on Psychotherapy and Clinical Psychology that met repeatedly to sort of make sense of the Catholic response. Um, in, in, in any case, the language was, uh, it's okay to use uh, psych psychiatric treatment, but we cannot allow it to negate the categories of guilt, spiritual anxiety, demonic opposition, celibacy, or chastity. So spiritual treatments first, supernatural explanations first, and then, okay, if you need psychiatric care, you can have it, but that psychiatric care cannot uh, disrespect these very important uh, spiritual concepts that have to be acknowledged and not challenged. So that's just one example, but all I would say is across the board, there's been members of religious communities especially um, people struggling with mental illness or people who have family members struggling with mental illness who uh, want to explore and integrate uh, psychiatric care into their religious life. And there's been other members of those communities who really have contested it or treated it with suspicion. Mm. So I'll end yeah. there for now. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing that historical example. Barbara, what are your thoughts here? Um, yes, I agree with Dr. Alvarez about the internal contestation um, and the confusion and the, the development, um, the lack of trust around um, psychiatric care, and that, that pervaded spiritual care, spiritual counseling, especially um, among those of us who whose heritage is the white dominant um, privileged group. Uh, I happen to be Presbyterian, which got mentioned earlier. So just in Protestant pastoral counseling, um, which emerged out of the Roman Catholic Church, Dr. Alvarez has mentioned, the, the idea that psychology might have something to offer the spiritual care of the veterans who are coming back and trying to reestablish a place in churches um, was a really difficult moment for the religious leaders, especially in, in um, what I'm familiar, most familiar with the Protestant churches. So they were, they were wrestling with the, the fact that spiritual care was not sufficient for caring with folks coming back from the wars. And so pastoral counseling developed as a field, as a discipline, integrating um, psychological and cultural perspectives. But even then, I think it remained a fairly um, individualized perspective, probably upper middle class educated um, focused on intrapsychic, heavily influenced by Freud um, and his, his heirs. But I think what's happening now in, in, at least in my field of scholarship, is the recognition that human beings are, are embedded in cultural and social systems. And so that in, not just informs our identities and experiences, but our emotions and our lives. And not to look at the racism the white supremacy, the misogyny, the homophobia, the transphobia, the poverty, 
the environmental degradation, the gun violence and chronic wars as root causes of a lot of the anxiety, depression, despair, and suicidal ideation, the mental crises that are growing exponentially today, not to look at those is to miss, I think, a key element of human experience and human mental health and well-being. And until, until we start connecting better the individual, the personal experience with the social, cultural, and hegemonies of power that have already been named, we're not going to be able to get to some of the root causes of what we call mental illness. Thank you, Barbara. Well said. Uh, Judith, uh, you had your hand and then Camila. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot in um, my research, uh, again, focused on the late 19th and early 20th century is sort of how to, um, how to think about how religious commitments inform the emergence of psychiatry. So to kind of avoid a distinction between the, you know, religious communities and a secular medical community at that, at that point, in a sense, um, you know, based on the set of these Southern, um, white Southern doctors I've been looking at, they are a kind of religious community and they're, they're doctors as well, right? They're, they are Methodists, they're Presbyterians, they're Baptists mostly. Um, and so um, I think it's important, again, not to, to draw a, a hard and fast distinction. I think we might um, benefit a great deal from thinking more about what are the religious um, sensibilities and presumptions that inform a changing landscape of, of um, care in, in terms of, of uh, mental health. Um, but to to speak to the question um, directly, I think, um, and Camila has mentioned this in in various ways as well. The Black religious communities have always provided ways of affirming humanity in the face of persistent um, dehumanization and anti-Blackness in American life, in ways that provide um, alternatives to or corrections of or refuge from the authority of um, white um, the white dominated medical world. So we find practices of physical, mental, and social healing, again, in Africana religious systems like conjure, appeal to the power of the Holy Spirit to heal mind and body and Pentecostalism. And um, the valuing of communication with the spirit world is a source of knowledge in varied Black religious contexts. Um, to the insistence, again, that from many Black new religious movements like the Nation of Islam and others, right, that their theologies and practices offer liberation from, and they use this term in several of them, mental slavery, right, imposed Mm. by a white supremacist society. So we see a range of of ways of countering the injurious power of uh, white supremacy. Um, And we also um, see more um, uh, work that is aligned with the emergence of, of pastoral counseling as well. So within mainstream Black Protestantism, there's the example um, from the late 1940s in Harlem of a, a collaborative project um, uh, among Richard Wright, the novelist, Reverend Shelton Hale Bishop of St. Philip's Episcopal Church, and white psychiatrist Fed, Frederick Wortham to create a community mental health clinic in Harlem, right, housed in the basement of St. Philip's Church to provide treatment, right, that's similar to, um, right, it's it's grounded in psychiatric care and pastoral counseling, but it's outside of the 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 world of the the physical world of the mental asylums and the ideological uh, medical world that pathologized blackness. Thanks, Judith, Camila. You had a hand up. Uh, 
Yes. Um, I, I also wanted to um, add a, a bit to what um, Dr. Weisenfeld mentioned, and that's um, part of what is also influencing um, the development of um, programs and language around health and wholeness um, is the, um, I think the, the very um, embodied sort of experiences of Black people being subject um, to being called inferior, subject to experimentation. Um, so the thought is not, well, let me go to the doctor. <laughs> it will be, you know, let me sit with my grandma's prayer book and she adds my name to it and she, you know, makes prayer in the morning and she includes me sort of in that supplication. Um, or it's, you know, being able to provide for oneself to have a sense of, of dignity and respect that will also address some of the, um, the challenges sort of mentally and emotionally that are being faced. Um, and so what, what I'm seeing uh, and, and, and this connects to um, sort of the work around the Nation of Islam and now seeing the evolution to present day um, is to um, organizations like Malati Islami, um, which is an Islamic recovery um, oriented program modeled after the 12 steps. Um, and it's, you know, in 2019, it celebrated its 30th year. Um, and it was founded in, in Baltimore um, in a predominantly African-American Muslim community um, mm. to again, address what are those um, addictions that, you know, we may not be able to find the care that we need through hospitalization, which can often run parallel to incarceration. Um, and so what can we do within our religious community in mm. order to address this idea that <clears throat> the addiction in some way is sort of straying away from what's called the straight path, right? It's straying away from God. Um, but it's it's framed in a very um, sort of positive and I think resonant way um, that there's a, a surrendering only to the creator and not a surrendering to these addictions. Um, and so I think that's one way in which religious communities have right. tried to, um, I don't want to say treat, I, I think just um, lift up that there are members of the community that are struggling. And so what does our faith provide um, right. in order to meet that concern? Right. Great example. Uh, Andrew, let's uh, give you a, a chance. I don't think you've had a chance to answer the second one. And then we'll move into our present moment and get some closing thoughts from everybody in the last 10 minutes. Andrew. No, I, I don't think I, I have much to add. I, I mean, I really appreciate how, um, we're pointing out how thinking about religion helps draw our attention um, to to the ways in which these it, it, there isn't a hard and fast divide between uh, between something like professional medicine and religion, where it's it might be more productive to think about them as offering competing visions of the human that are often tied up with questions about the more than human um, that intersect with race. Um, in in different ways and so uh raising uh new questions about uh about how we might critique professional medicine and i i especially appreciate the ways in which several of the answers um both camilla's and judith's point towards for some communities the question isn't how can we influence or reshape professional medicine, but actually we we have such a critique or have so little confidence in the ways in which professional medicine might address our communities that we actually have to develop something alternative over here um, or apart from it, or be very selective about our collaboration, um, which, uh, which yeah, is, is significant to know. Right. 
Thank you. We we could definitely I could definitely uh, spend a few hours talking about these first two questions. There's a lot here that could help uh, our listeners, help Americans as they battle with the mental health crisis that we have. But we have an hour, so we're going to move from thinking about or, or talking about history of how religious communities have seen and addressed uh, mental health issues and illnesses to our present moment. So uh, Barbara described our present moment well, I think. Um, uh, there, you know, mental health crisis, I'll throw that out there. I did at the beginning. Uh, I'm not an expert, but uh, from what I read in the newspapers and when I talk to people, it seems like we're really battling here and maybe we always have, but uh, our present moment. I want each of you to take uh, two minutes, three minutes max, and and give us your take on where religions can help today uh, with our, our present moment. Uh, influence heavily on on the history of, of how religions have dealt with this in the past. How can our history, our understanding of this history, help Americans today as we struggle with this mental health crisis, either personally in our families, friends, religious communities, or the broader public. And uh, why don't we um, ask, let's see, let's ask uh, Andrew, I know you just spoke, but uh, we'll give you the first try on this last one, if you don't mind. Sure. I'm. Um, Two or three minutes each. Sure. The I think what I was starting to say, or, or as I'm digesting the contributions of, of my colleagues, I think, uh, especially around questions of racism and anti-Blackness, that we have to foreground the question, like, how do we define this crisis? What are its sources? For whom is there a crisis? If there's something new now, what kind of, what populations, what people do we have in mind when we're defining that there's something novel about the mental health crisis? And as I was reflecting on this, I kind of, I think I'm surprising myself uh, with how I'm inclined to respond to it in part. I think I, I'm I'm finding myself mobilizing data in a way that I'm not, in, not, not inclined to. And I'm also inclined to preach to an audience that's probably like not mine to preach to. Um, but I think that's a, that may be a question of history in the sense that um, the spate of anti-trans bills that have emerged in state legislatures uh, since the start of this year. And so I, I, my mind went to a study from 2018 from a psychiatrist, um, the lead author was uh, Dr. Megan Little, and it, uh, it suggested an association of uh, what the, the authors of the study called religiosity with um, mental health crises among queer and trans youth. Um, and the study suggested, unlike in most uh, the ways in which uh, psychiatrists and psychologists tend to talk about religiosity as having beneficial effects with respect to mental health crises, in the case of queer and trans youth, um, it correlated with suicidal ideation and attempts. Um, and so there was a lot of press coverage around this, this study that came out, and one of the there was a queer Christian who was interviewed in one, I think, in the Huffington Post in response to it. And the this, this uh, young queer Christian said, there are some questions we have to begin asking ourselves if maintaining one interpretation of our sacred text is demonstrably linked to bodily harm and spiritual devastation for an entire group of people. And so this uh, 
one way that I'm inclined to respond to this question that about how religious communities can provide answers to or help with today's mental health crisis is to invite them with this individual to ask difficult questions about how they define the men mental health crisis. Is it linked mm. um, to anti-trans, uh, anti-queer theology? Is it linked to anti-blackness? Is it linked to uh, social structures and forms that are making life, life less livable for whole populations or okay. does what emerge for them uh in terms of a mental health crisis is that reducible to to a white person struggling with very real issues but is it detached from these broader questions um, oh. of, of social inequity and, and social injustice so that's the that's the first place that that my mind goes that, that's very specific very focused thank you that's a, that's a good tool that uh, you've you've put out there on the table others want to jump in Barbara, let's go to you. Thank you, um, Dr. Cornetta. That was that was helpful and insightful, and I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I think religious communities and religious leaders of various stripes have have always tried to ask the kinds of questions that you're asking, and we've, you know, our perspectives historically and currently differ. But I think that at the heart of Religious life is a desire for wholeness, body, uh, body mind, and spirit, and for, for well-being, um, not just as individuals, but as communities and societies. And I, I think, to use your language, if we asked, if we sat with the hard questions about what well-being is, what it requires, what God, however, however we define that, desires for creation, um, what, what might that accomplish? Ideally, I think we would pay attention to individuals' well-being and thriving as well as communal and global. And I think to do that, we have to understand the, the oneness of all things, the interdependence that makes us all vulnerable, which religious leaders like Jesus of Nazareth, Lao Tzu, the Buddha, all seem to have understood. Um, maybe religious communities might be able to talk more and better about the ways that love and justice are inextricable or that care is a universal need and a core religious value. And maybe I think to underscore your point, mental illness could be understand in part as a natural human response to lack of love and justice and mutual care in our lives. And I think religious communities could do a better job of exploring that connection and maybe modeling a, a, a new way as many of my colleagues, including Dr. Rashad have said. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, Dr. Rashad, let's go to you. Um, yes, I'm. I'm really grateful, Dr. Cornetta, for this question of for whom is there a crisis, um, and I, I think that in order to begin to answer, you know, might be to look to non-Christian traditions um, that have, you know, developed within sort of the United States, developed sort of in in spite of Christian hegemony, sort of answers to, you know, how do we help believers in their pursuit of one closeness to the creator, however it's defined, um, and, and also be able to thrive in spite of all of those um, instances of, of marginalization. Um, in, in 2015, 
I established a Black Muslim Psychology Conference here in Philadelphia, and it was in response to um, the, the murder of Freddie Gray and the Baltimore uprising. Um, and the first day of the conference was on the 150th anniversary of Juneteenth. Um, and it was the first uh, Juma or Friday of Ramadan, the month of fasting that year. And so for, for us, for Black Muslims, the convergence of those dates and the context was, was very uh, significant. Um, and so in, in that sort of question of crisis, um, we acknowledge that what we have faced is something that is that has been for generations, right? Hundreds yeah. of years. Um, so the, the trauma of, um, of, uh, of white supremacy, the trauma of enslavement, of colonization, of genocide um, is something that we have been developing tools um, to, to remain resilient, right? In the face of. Um, so I, I think shifting, you know, perhaps to, how have those most marginalized, vulnerable, oppressed communities um, managed to find peace and health and love, right, mm. in spite of? Um, and so that might be a, a place for us to begin. Great. Very focused as well. Very helpful tool, all three of you already. Uh, Elizabeth, how can you help us in yeah. our present moment? So to me, like in the 19th century, we continue to need communication, education, and dialogue between communities. Uh, one thing religion's already doing well is creating communities. And to the degree that they can continue to do so in person post-COVID, uh, rather than through social media, et cetera, that they can create human connections. That's shown to be a tremendous support in the case of mental health crises. So they're already doing that well. Uh, something that some religious communities aren't doing well is that there's still shame, stigma, or guilt associated with being mentally ill, that it's a spiritual deficiency or something that needs to be hidden. So there can be more education in religious communities about the signs of mental health crises and illness and support there. Um, Mental health organizations themselves can be trained in religious studies and uh, learn more about the language of religious communities so that they uh, don't inadvertently alienate people who need their help. Yeah. And I think the most important thing, though it's slightly off topic, is that in real moments of mental health crisis, the people who show up on the first are the police. So if we can do anything, it would be to have police trained showing up with social workers or having social workers show up first or have people showing up in moments of mental health crisis that are trained in both uh, religious studies and mental health, because that is the most uh, crucial uh, thing that we have to address is who shows up in those moments of mental crisis so that we can have the safest and best outcome. But those are my thoughts. Thank you. Judith, you're gonna have the last word. Well, I'm going to pick up on exactly uh, where Elizabeth left off, because I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, you know, what would it mean for religious institutions to encourage seeking treatment and care when needed in the in the face of persistent racial bias in medicine and broader areas of public service? So, you know, there was a Washington Post did a study of of police shootings from 2015 to 2020, and almost one third of those people killed um, in police shootings were people suffering with mental illness. Um, and that doesn't even account for the other people with mental illness who were killed by the police as in the case of Daniel Prude in Rochester, um, a little over a year ago where his brother called for help and the police suffocated him to death. Um, and so, 
you know, this is really fraught. And so again, to underscore um, Elizabeth's point that something different has to happen in, in that regard, um, as it intersects as well with, you know, the fact that um, African-American or Black people are five times as likely to be killed by police. So when you bring race and mental illness together, it's um, a really uh, um, dangerous context for people seeking help. Um, I've also been thinking about what um, I would argue that, you know, right, white religious institutions, communities should really explore their contributions to the pathologizing of black religions. Again, so coming forward from my research in the 19th century, right? What are the contributions to pathologizing black religions and to the systemic racism that, that create conditions of stress for black people, people of color? And I, I'm struck by the recent campaigns of some white evangelicals, for example, um, to demonize black social justice efforts, such as the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And decrying um, critical race theory, uh, an intellectual framework through which African Americans and people of color have sought to analyze and address systemic racism, right? These constitute, in my um, view, an assault on Black well-being, these campaigns. And so for white mm -hmm. religious institutions to reckon with their contributions to systemic racism, not for the purposes of, of reconciliation, for asking Black people to forgive them, but to address the social realities that shape these contexts that that um, that work against black well-being, this would be a positive contribution. Thank you. We have been listening to Dr. Judith Weisenfeld, Agate Brown, and George L. Collard, Professor of Religion at Princeton University and author of A New World, A Coming Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration. And Dr. Andrew Walker Cornetta, postdoctoral research associate at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis, Dr. Barbara McClure, associate professor of pastoral theology and practice at Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University and author of Emotions, Problems and Promise for Human, Human Flourishing, Dr. Camila Rashad, founder of, and president of, Muslim, of the Muslim Wellness Foundation and the founding co-director of the National Black Muslim COVID Coalition. And finally, Dr. Elizabeth Hayes, uh, Hayes Alvarez, Associate Professor of Religion at Temple University and an author working on the book entitled Challenging the Great Physician, Christian Responses to the Rise of Psychiatry in America. The startup Digital First National Museum of American Religion is both a place of convening for discussions about current national issues where religion or the idea of religious freedom is in play, as we did today, and the nationally recognized center for presenting, interpreting, and educating the public about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the history, the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States. Listeners, here at the end, we want to remind you to join the museum effort by going to whensorrowcomes.org subscribemenow.com where you can receive for a $200 donation a signed copy of When Sorrow Comes, a book by Melissa Mathis about sermons that have come to the aid of America during our times of national crisis. Judith, Andrew, Barbara, Camila, and Elizabeth, thank you so very much for being with us today. You have supplied all of us with information that will help us in the coming days participate with more success 
in the public square and in our personal square with regards to the mental health crisis that America is facing. Thank you so very much for your time. Thank you, Chris. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. <laughs>